This is COVID Connections on the Niall Boylan Show. Classic hits. Now, obviously, as part of our COVID Connections feature, we're taking a look at how this whole thing is impacting on individuals, on groups, uh, on special interest groups, etc. And to start off today, we've got quite a lot to fit into our COVID Connections slot today. But first off, we're going to North Dublin and the very picturesque village of Malahide. Uh, the pedestrianisation of a popular street crammed with pretty busy bars, a few restaurants, throw in a couple of uh, boutiques, and it's dividing uh, quite literally the people of Malahide and it's been branded a mistake. New Street in the uh, village was basically declared traffic free in the middle of June. Now it's a 10 week trial. Uh, We've seen it in other parts of Dublin as well where areas are being pedestrianised in and around the city centre, around the South William Street area. uh, A bit of pedestrianisation going on in Black Rock as well. Um, Obviously the uh, argument being put up uh, for it is that it is to allow for social distancing, give more rooms, less of a squash between cars and people um, and to pedestrianise more areas. But it's not going down very well with a number of local businesses. I'm joined now on the line by Joe Kenny from the Save Our Village campaign in Malahide. John, um, you, I think, have a fear that this is more of a permanent measure uh, or a backdoor way into pedestrianising Malahide. Well, Fingal have come along with a lot of um, hardware that looks to us to be very permanent. Now, they claim it's a 10-week um, pilot project, but it, it looks very permanent to us. And we suspect that what's happening here is somebody in Fingal have had this dream for a long time, and they're using COVID as an excuse to implement it now. Okay. Probably, it very easy to turn into a nightmare. And, you know, anyone who has visited, I'm, I'm not too far away from you, I would be in Malahide fairly regularly. I mean, there's lots mm-hmm. of green space, you've got the promenade, yeah. you've got the castle, obviously, and the grounds yeah. around it. Uh, there is lot of, a lot of space for people to move around in Malahide. But when it comes to socialising, a lot of the bars and the restaurants are all within just a street or two, narrow streets or two away. You know, from a punter's point of view, pedestrianisation is maybe something that they might welcome, the visitors who are coming into Malahide every weekend. Why are, 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 why is there such local opposition to it? If there's pedestrianisation, maybe more people will come to Malahide and spend their money. Well, of course, pedestrianisation is a very seductive idea. But if you look at the detail of it, in a particular place like here in Malahide, there are lots of downsides. I mean, one of the most obvious ones in New Street is we have a health centre in the street. Now, from the windows of my restaurant, we watch aged and infirm people making their way into that health centre. Mm-hmm. What tends to happen is they're dropped off by the carers at the door mm-hmm. and they go straight in. Now, with pedestrianisation, they have to be dropped at the top of the street. And it is heartbreaking to watch them making their way down and on, trying to get into the place. That's just cruelty. And I've written to all the councillors highlighting this problem, and only one of them has bothered to come back to me, Avian and Tormi from Host. Ironically, a host councillor who's only more uh, compassion for the people, the, the vulnerable people of Malahide than our own local councillors. Now, that's just one example. There are many others. Cyclists, skateboarders. We've had um, um, disorderly behaviour. We've had vagrants sleeping on the benches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just our, great, our greatest fear is that this, well, what we're looking at is a temple bar type atmosphere creeping into Malahide. Okay. And obviously Malahide is very busy, particularly at weekends, particularly summer weekends. I mean, I've been yeah. there. And the thing about that is, it makes a joke of the COVID separation thing because people are thronging around. So in actual fact, it's having the exact opposite to what it's purported to be doing. 
it's not actually a COVID measure at all, or at least in so far as it is, it's making the, the danger of catching COVID even worse. And is Fingal insisting for you, for, with you that this is temporary and that it is only 10 weeks? I mean, have no, they given you that assurance? No, they haven't. Only one councillor has given me that assurance and I don't believe for one moment that it's temporary. Okay, so there you go. Things that many of us may view as pro, as, as things that are, are progress or, or that, you know, are going to make things better for us uh, don't necessarily make things better for the people who live there. And, uh, certainly a feeling from, from Joe Kenny there and, uh, the business group in Malahide. And I think the same is reflected from areas in South County Dublin as well and possibly in areas that we haven't heard about around the country. Um, that in actual fact, pedestrianization, Although it may seem shiny and happy and new and, and have a beautiful image of sort of, you know, very European kind of cafe culture style of living. It's not necessarily so straightforward for the people who live in those areas. Want to move on now. Of course, we this week, uh, heard about the government's plan to reopen schools here literally four weeks from now. And, um, we, you know, there's been a lot of debate here about how practical it is to be able to social, uh, in, in, enforce social distancing in our classrooms. Of course, it doesn't affect the very tiny ones who'll be starting school or maybe in, uh, in in senior infants this year. But older children then in primary school, a metre distance, bubbles. Uh, you know, I know that um, I got notification during the week. My son's school bus, they're all going to have to sit in the same seat, wear masks and sit next to preferably a sibling or somebody else in their class. So it's all quite confusing. Well, someone who's already got the heads up on this is Liam Printer. He's a native of Westport in County Mayo, but you've been living and teaching in Switzerland for the past seven years, Liam, and you're already back at school and have been for some time. Yeah, that's correct. We've been back at school since the 11th of May, actually. Um, And when you consider that Switzerland is so close to the north of Italy, where we, of course, had the epicentre of it, it was quite remarkable and a little bit uh, scary, I have to say, going back to school so quickly and back to the live classroom on the 11th of May. And were you, did you at the time take a view that this is a bit too soon? Personally, yeah, I was. Like my, my fiance actually works in, um, she's a doctor in paediatrics in Switzerland and she has done a master's in global health. So we would be quite up on all this and, you know, would talk about it a lot. And yeah. when we were going back, I did say to her, you know, wow, I, I feel like this is early. I think that we're probably going to have a spike in cases in the next couple of weeks. But it was, the, it was the federal law. It was the government's decision. You know, every school in the country went back on the 11th of May. So we just kind of had to get on with it. But I, I definitely was a bit apprehensive, I have to say, going back. Yeah. And so talk to us then, because, I mean, as a parent, I'm apprehensive. I'm sure my children are apprehensive. I'm sure the teachers and the principals are very apprehensive. So you've been through this. Talk to us about your first day back in class. What was it like? What kind of restrictions did you have in place there? Are they similar at all to what's being suggested here? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I think you have to consider that where the virus was on the 11th of May, and, and it's quite different, I suppose, our understanding of it now. So the Swiss government decided that students up to the age of 16 did essentially not need to socially distance. They, that was their, their, their way of looking at it. So they said that students up the age of 16 on the 11th of May will be back in school on um, every second day. So we had to organise that as a school ourselves, how we mm-hmm. did that. So we broke uh, students up into essentially A and B. Mm-hmm. And A was in on Monday, B was in on Tuesday. And that's how we did that. And you did that for two weeks. And then after two weeks, that was removed. Okay. And we were just back to normal full classes. In terms of the measures you spoke about just there, you know, the bubbles and the one metre distance mm-hmm. and the masks, we were told we were allowed to wear masks if we wished. It was to- totally up to us. And um, students were also told that if they wanted. Obviously, there's hand sanitizer in all the classrooms. 
and and what they did in the school was they kind of just changed a lot of the way the movement of people through the school so that was our school decided right no parents or adults are allowed onto the campus unless they have an appointment so the government's decision was what they needed to do was reduce the amount of adults in the building as opposed to children that's the way they looked at it so for example the primary school at our school section they had staggered start times so they would start at you know, 8.15, 8.25, 8.35 in the yeah. same when they were finishing. And that meant, of course, that there was less movement around the school, less adults on campus. Um, other things like the cafeteria, they changed the times and only certain year groups at certain times, one space between students. But again, almost all of that got, you know, the stuff like that where the social distancing was in place got removed when we went back to full classes simply because it just wasn't possible. It's just not possible. So are you now at a stage in your school that essentially is kind of normal, Liam? Are you back to the way you were pre-COVID almost? I think it's it's pretty similar. It's pretty similar. Um, the, the older students, so um, essentially the fifth and sixth years, they only came back on that kind of hybrid every second day from the 8th of June to the end of the year. So we continued with that with them to okay. the end of the year. But the other students from 16 down, they were all back in full classes and it was pretty normal. The things like I, I kind of pointed out in the article was just that, you know, we don't have any sports. There's no theatre performances. There's no like there's music performances. There's no field trips. So all the fun stuff has essentially been stripped out, right. which is a real shame. Yeah. But I think it's been fantastic to get the students back and personally on a personal note I've really appreciated being back and seeing my colleagues and yes we're two Mm. metres apart at the coffee machine Mm -hmm. and talking at a distance but it has given me a real sense of okay this is why I'm a teacher I'm not a teacher to sit in front of my computer all day that's not what I trained for Okay yeah but uh, there'd be no gossiping amongst the teaching staff if you've got to be two (laughs) metres apart that's for sure Have you seen any increase in infections or have have any clusters emerged in the classroom? I mean they're talking here about there won't be or there shouldn't be a need, according to Education Minister Norma Foley, to close an entire school if there's an outbreak, that it will be very much a case of contract tracing um, as to who's been in very close contact with the affected case and then we'll take it from there on a case-by-case basis. What are you seeing in schools in Switzerland? Yeah, it's a very similar approach, actually. The, the, the local government, so Switzerland is broken up into cantons, which would be the similar kind of the size of a province in Ireland. And they have a lot of um, autonomy about the way they make rules. But the federal government said everyone goes back to school, but then the cantons can decide on how they want to do that of uh, contact tracing and closing schools and that kind of thing. So in our canton, they decided that they would do exactly as you said. It would be contact tracing. They would close down a class or a year group if that was necessary. Now, that did not happen in any school I'm aware of. Okay. I think if I remember in the news, there might have been one school, but that was before the lockdown. And um, so what actually happened bizarrely, and I mean, I'm so, I know epidemiologists, so I was quite surprised, but the case numbers actually decreased. They went down when we went back to school. So we were at about 40, 50 cases a day on average when we went back to school on the 11th of May. And it went down to about 15, 20 cases a day for the rest of June. Okay. And it was in July it started to go back up again when the borders opened. Now, again, of course, there's many different reasons why that might have happened. But in general, the cases stayed remarkably low. I was personally quite surprised and obviously pleasantly surprised. And what that meant was some of the teachers who had decided to stay at home because they were in, they were in the vulnerable group, they worked at home for, say, two weeks, and we just kind of helped to cover their classes, did whatever we could. And then after about two weeks, when they realized there's, no, there's not been a spike, where I'm going to go back to school, but okay. I'm going to like, wear a mask and I'm going to be careful. So that's what happened. A few of those teachers decided to come back for the last three or four weeks because they realized there's not been a big spike in cases. And have you come up against any parents who've 
had grave hesitation or even gone so far as to actually not have their children go back to class, Liam? Yeah, absolutely we have. And I completely empathise with them. And I honestly, anyone who's listening there now and your, your teacher or parent, I 100% empathise with your feeling of nervousness and apprehension because we all had it. So some of the parents who maybe have a child in a vulnerable group or a child with diabetes or something similar, yeah. they, it was up to them to make that decision if they wanted to come back. Some of my students, for example, I know one student did not come back at all. He stayed working from home. And yes, I think his education was impacted upon that because you simply can't teach the 25, 26 kids in front of you and also try and teach the kid at home. Okay. When it was half and half, you could kind of do it because you would set work for the people in front of you and those at home and then you would switch it the next day. But when you've only one or two kids at home, it was really challenging. But, I mean, it's up to the parents to make that decision about the safety of their child at the end of the day. Some of the parents, their child stayed at home for, say, the first two or three weeks and then they came in on a kind of every second day because they just wanted them to be around their friends again and they realised it was impacting them. So I think it's a very personal decision, but I would 100% empathise and back up whatever a parent decides to do. I mean, it's up to them at the end of the day. And, I mean, to that end, you know, you're, you're seeing the effect of, of you know, uh, th- how difficult it was to maybe tr- keep an eye and, and teach that one individual is at home or maybe yeah. two or three small numbers. You know, we, we've had, obviously, a long summer holiday preceded mm. by a long period of three months yeah. of kids essentially being at home. You know, I have three mm. myself, all doing, all in different schools, and they're all, therefore all having a different experience, I suppose, of what homeschooling is yeah. or was. Do you think, as a teacher, and, you know, you're a teacher, but you're also an educational con- consultant, do you what do you see as being the long term effects of this and of being stuck at home and of remote learning on kids or are we not giving them enough credit with their ability to adapt and to deal with change maybe more easily than adults can Yeah it's a really interesting point I think like the first thing to say would just again I suppose anyone who's listening might be thinking oh this guy works out in Switzerland, there's loads of money, everything's great. But I mean, from my perspective as a teacher, having worked in Ireland, I would recognise the same things among children everywhere, is that they like being around other children, they need adult contact, they enjoy the sense of community of being around people. So I think that in the long term, if this is, is, this is, if this is with us for a lot longer, I think we do have to come up with a way to somehow allow students and kids to interact and be around each other, considering that you know, only 2% of cases in the world are under are on the under-18s. So we have to manage that risk. And I was just reading a National Geographic article yesterday which talked about this, that adults are affected in a very physical way by COVID-19 with <laughs> our breathing, but students and children are affected very much on the mental uh, pathways and that it really impacts their kind of sense of inclusion, their development, their sense of belonging with people. So I do think it's something we have to be very careful of In terms of the future, I think we've all learned a huge amount from this as teachers. Like, I certainly now am using tools in my classes that I never knew existed before the lockdown because I suddenly overnight had to learn how to do everything online and post things online and do videos and all these different things. So I think that there will be a a positive legacy from that. As teachers, I feel like we've all really improved a lot. But I do feel like most of us as teachers, we became teachers because we love children and we like being around them and Mm. we like the sense of seeing them learn and grow. And I think that for me, being back in the classroom, even if it is a bit different and they're spaced out, is, is 
a lot more positive than continuing to just be behind my screen at home no matter how effective you are at that. Yeah. Finally, Liam, just any advice that you have for teachers who might be uh, have some trepidation about the fact that they've got to get back to work and, and be in front of, I don't know what the class sizes are like in Switzerland, I'd hazard a guess that they're significantly smaller than they are here in Ireland, but, you know, they have to get back up in front of, of, of 30 plus potentially children who might have anxieties and issues and worries you know, what words of comfort can you give them and indeed their parents? Yeah, it's a really, really great point. I think that for me, going back and personally, I feel that the really important thing is to point out that we don't have to over-concentrate on where we are with the curriculum right now. I think for the first few weeks in particular, I would just put the students at the centre of everything we're doing, find out about their lives, what they're doing, their interests, and, and just welcome them back and try and take the pressure off in terms of exams and where we are and if we're, you know, in adverted commas, behind, whatever that means. So, you know, I, I wouldn't concentrate on that side of things to begin with. I would just really focus on allowing them to feel like their friends around. They will be really nervous coming back, as will you, and it'll feel a bit clinical the first few days, but it will go back to a relative normal quite quickly. So I, I, that would be my number one thing, if I could go back to that first day, would be just to make sure that you... Talk to the children, let them know how you've been, talk to them about your experiences, about mm. the fact that you missed the classroom too. And, mm. and I think there you can move forward with things. Worry about the curriculum and the, the stress and pressures of exams and all that thing later. Let that come a lot later. OK, and sorry, I should have asked, Liam, what is the status in Switzerland with COVID and with outbreaks there now? I mean, is it fairly yeah. stable in comparison to other European countries and, and the likes of the US and, and South America? Or, or are you seeing this so-called second wave that we're now starting to see in, in some other areas of countries like Spain, say, in Germany? I think that it's, it is, there is definitely a growth in numbers. So I think at our peak, we were getting about 1,200 or 1,300 cases a day. And now we're at about 100, 120 a day. So about 10% of our peak. But again, about three, four weeks ago, that was down, well, maybe more about five weeks ago, it was down around 30 or 40 a day. So I think we're on a similar trajectory to many countries like Germany and Italy, but definitely not as bad as, uh, let's say, Spain or the US or anything like that. I think they have a good contact tracing system in place, which helps. Um, but, you know, as an Irishman abroad, I've been very proud, I have to say, of the way Ireland has dealt with everything and kept the numbers really low. And I was supposed to go back and see family, but I didn't do it because the country is trying to really be careful with okay. what they're doing. And, and I appreciate that. I think it's the right move. But I do feel now is the time to get the students back for their well-being. OK, very good. Liam Painter, um, Liam Printer, rather, who also hosts the Motivated Classroom podcast as well. Check that out. Now, so where Liam is in Switzerland at the right time, he reckons, for our children to be going back to school. Uh, now we want to talk to another Irish person who's abroad, um, Cork woman, uh, Cathy Tobin. Cathy, you're in Florida. Um, you, you, Liam Printer there telling us that, you know, they're starting to see a slight second wave potentially in Switzerland. We're being told to hold firm here. We're starting to see, uh, you know, the biggest daily rise we had yesterday since since June. Florida is a whole other kettle of fish, though. Yeah, absolutely. We had our highest death toll just yesterday, um, heading to about 200 people. Um, we've got we've had over 6,000 deaths and um, close to half a million cases in Florida. So we're definitely in a hot spot. Um, and yet our state leaders and, of course, the president continue to push for school opening, making a lot of us very nervous over here. OK, now you moved uh, there in, in the early 90s. Is that right? Do you have children there yourself? 
That's right. Um, my husband's Tom and I, Tom's from Douglas and Cork, um, moved over here in 93. And um, we've been here ever since. And, you know, really enjoying our American experience. It was supposed to be a year's adventure okay. that stretched out quite a bit. Okay. Um, and yeah, we've got three three children now over here. And so tell us a little um, about what daily life is like for you at the moment, Cathy. I mean, we've had our own experience of lockdown. We're easing. We have our restaurants back open. Uh, you know, we can travel uh, to different counties now. We have our green list, which you should or shouldn't be traveling to. We're still completely unclear about the right or wrongs of that. Right. What's it like for you in Florida with this chaos seemingly going on around you? Yeah, it, chaos is a marvellous word to describe what we've been experiencing here. You know, there's been a lack of a cohesive effort, either nationally or on the state level, um, you know, which I feel would massively have contributed to us being in a much better condition um, now than we find ourselves in. Um, so, you know, pocketed areas of restrictions, um, the state issuing orders, then counties issuing orders, cities issuing orders, um, it's bizarre. We have, um, for the most part now, we're having individual companies like supermarkets um, declaring mask mandates, um, the city asking people to wear masks, but then, not, you know, no um, stop gaps in place for those people who refuse to. Um, our local supermarket here has got the, the arrows going down um, the aisles. Uh, to keep one directional flow going um, and then uh, now I think we've gotten a bit better in the last couple of weeks I think people have started to realise that we're in a very serious situation um, but prior to that I would see people you know with masks off um, marching intentionally against the flow of traffic um, in the supermarket just because there's been such mixed messaging um, throughout the country and the state um, around COVID, is it a hoax? Is it real? Um, the politicisation of it has become very problematic and is definitely, I feel, um, contributing to the spread of the disease. Okay, and talk to, I mean, certainly from what you're saying, Cathy, your, your messages, you're getting, we've been, we've been discussing on the programme earlier, the conflicting advice that we're getting between, can you go here? Can you go there? Should you do this? Should you do that? Should you do the other? And, um, it sounds as though it's about as clear as mud where you are as well, with different levels of authority (laughs) telling you different things. That's that term. And so. It's as clear as mud. We, we just heard from Liam Printer about schools. Our kids are going back to schools in, at the end of August into September. You're getting federal orders, you know, send the kids back to school. You know, what, what are you going to do about this? Will you be penalised if you don't send your, your kids to school? Yeah, the um, state um, and Trump himself actually have said quite clearly that they are in a position to withhold um, funding of our schools um, if we don't comply with the order to open five days a week uh, brick and mortar um, so I mean that's very daunting I find that local I suspect that local school boards um, are finding themselves very conflicted because the medical evidence suggests that it's not a good time to open schools and um, then at the same time you know I live in Orange County in Florida we are in the 10th largest school district in America and um, you know serving about 220,000 children with 24,000 staff um, and if the funding is cut off to our districts, that's a lot of people out of jobs yep. and a lot of schools that aren't ever going to be able to open their doors. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It seems that um, politi- pol- political um, motivation is uh, superseding uh, medical sense, I think, mm-hmm. at this point. And even the people who rely 
that there is a concern about opening schools are being hobbled um, at the state and national level um, by those who just seek to uh, get the economy um, looking good, I think, you know, if I were to be very cynical, in time for November. Cathy, do you wish you were home? I love how Ireland has been handling all this. Um, My parents are both in Cork and, you know, I just feel that there's been a concerted effort in Ireland that everyone's really um, risen to the challenge of the time and come together in a way as a community to suppress the spread of the virus. Um, I've been in awe of what I've seen happening in Ireland um, and the sense of camaraderie too. My dad's... um, male uh, woman actually uh, put a note in his mailbox to say stay in the house i'll get you any of the groceries that you need you know it's just been absolutely lovely to see what's been happening in ireland and then in very stark contrast to what our experience here has been okay well i think a very nice positive message there from both kathy and from liam to irish overseas that although we might be down on ourselves and bitching and moaning about the right thing and the wrong thing and what we're being told to do as opposed to what we can get away with doing. It's kind of nice to hear uh, from two people overseas that certainly from the vista that they're looking at that we seem to be doing things right. COVID Connections on the Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.